For the first couple weeks after Election Day, I basked in the glow of a defeat that area politicos and journalists practically construed as a win. All of a sudden, people who had thrown me forcibly out of meetings, such as the Democratic Party chair, Brian Wabi, wanted to have beers with me. Claire McCaskill, the Democratic gubernatorial nominee who had just toppled a sitting governor for the first time in state history, asked me to come work on her campaign to galvanize the youth vote statewide. Reporters called to ask how we came so close and to apologize for not taking our campaign more seriously. And organizations that had snubbed me just weeks before were calling me for policy ideas or inviting me to keynote their next event. I lost, but it felt like I had a political future. A couple of weeks after Election Day, we received an inquiry from the FEC, which wanted to ascertain whether our campaign had illegally coordinated with the producer of the postcard. The following week, my lawyer prepared a response, an affidavit with 15 numbered statements that answered questions posed by the FEC. Nearly all were true. One was not. I don't know who designed, produced, printed, disseminated, or financed the postcard, it read. My lawyer didn't know that my aides had met with Skip, and I didn't volunteer that they had. She handed me the affidavit. Now, I didn't know exactly who had done the first four things, though I figured Skip was involved in some way, but I knew that Steve had raised the money, and I knew my staff had given Skip information about Carnahan's attendance record. That the information was publicly available and possessed by other campaigns as well as journalists didn't matter. The exchange itself broke a law. I also knew that, like jumping into icy water, if I waited too long to sign, I'd never do it. My mind raced with reasons to sign. I'd made a pact with Steve and my aides to deny any involvement with the mailer. I wanted to protect my aides from legal trouble. I wanted to avoid tarnishing our acclaimed campaign and to escape a big fine after having just spent much of my savings on the campaign. I was exhausted, and I just wanted to put it all behind me as I prepared to move to New Hampshire for a visiting professorship. My lawyer handed me a pen. My mind raced. Didn't the FEC get thousands of these complaints every cycle and let them pile up for years, I thought to myself? And why on earth would anybody spend time pursuing this one, since I lost and the candidate who filed it went on to win? I tried to clear all the thoughts from my head. I willed my hand toward the desk and signed, and with that, I closed the book on the 2004 campaign. Unfortunately, the Carnahans did not. My successful run had raised my profile and drawn job offers. I accepted a one-year gig at Dartmouth, where I could finish my doctoral thesis, consider an academic career, and weigh future political options. After seriously considering a primary rematch against Carnahan, pretty risky, and moving to a district near Washington University with an open seat in the state house, which would have been a pretty safe bet, I decided to run for an open, majority black state senate seat covering half of St. Louis City. As I neared a decision, Artie Harris, who had remained a close friend and advisor since our 2004 loss, called and strongly encouraged me to run for the state senate seat, arguing that I was better suited to representing a racially split district than a predominantly white one. Two hours after we spoke, an unsolicited email from Artie arrived. It contained the guts of what would become my announcement email and ultimately my Senate campaign stump speech. For too long, St. Louis politicians have pitted neighborhood against neighborhood, north against south, black against white. These artificial walls, perpetrated by people who fiercely guard their fiefdoms and cling desperately to power, must be torn down. My campaign will do that. It will work to obliterate the racial demarcation line of Delmar Boulevard and help us become one city again, 
one St. Louis. Now, this may not sound groundbreaking in 2015, but when Artie and I wrote it in 2005, it felt bold, even exhilarating. I hadn't seen any St. Louis politician lay bare the city's divisions as starkly. I did not look like the district I sought to represent. I was a 32-year-old agnostic Jew with a Ph.D. The district was mostly black and 90% Protestant or Catholic. Less than a fifth of voters had college degrees, and the median age of primary voters was over 60. The city's most influential black politicos all endorsed state representative Yafet Elamine, the leading black candidate. Upon returning from New Hampshire, I sat down at a local diner with a top aide to Congressman Lacey Clay, who represented most of St. Louis City and whose father had done so before him, and whose congressional district encompassed most of the state Senate district.